Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. The media, journalism. Nowadays, it's commonly assumed that the two are interchangeable. Think of this quote from F. Sionel José, the Filipino writer. We are shallow because our media is so horribly shallow. Every morning I peruse the papers and there is so little to read in them. It's the same with the radio, all that noise, all that artifice. Many people would agree with that sentiment. Yet I, someone who started out in journalism in the 1980s, long before the media even existed, would adamantly say the two are very different. Journalism is a profession, an honorable profession devoted to reporting facts and discovering the truth. Media is a platform or platforms upon which everything from journalism to pure hatred is distributed widely and profoundly. Call it what you may, media and journalism are indispensable to the modern pursuit of power and its exercise in our lives, be it political, military, cultural, social, and many other. We may have our reservations, but the last few years of crises have reflected this ever more. We know about COVID, wars, sanctions, energy crises, food crises, Brexit, politicians and their advisors, and so, so much more, both from journalists and from the messages, often distorted, distributed on social media. Women journalists or reporters have long been a strong pillar of the profession, as well as expert media actors. And today we have with us two such amazing women to discuss the profession and its role in our rapidly changing world. Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent of Politico EU and host of its EU Confidential podcast, and Stephanie Bolzen, UK Correspondent for the German daily Die Welt and the Sunday Welt am Sonntag. Welcome, ladies. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's start from uh, the way we always start. Tell us a bit about yourselves. Suzanne, could you tell us a bit about your career and how you came to be where you are today? Thanks so much. And it's great to be on the podcast. Um, looking forward to an interesting discussion. Yes, well, I joined Politico Europe um, a little over a year ago. Uh, I moved to Brussels to take up this position. But uh, most of my career was with the Irish Times. You may tell from my accent that I hail from, from Ireland. Um, and like most people who forge a career in journalism, it was a it was a long journey. It took a lot of hard work, a lot of perseverance. Um, I originally was embarking on an academic career. I thought I was studying for a PhD uh, in English literature at Cambridge, and uh, I started getting into student journalism then. And slowly but surely started pitching articles for newspapers in the UK and in Ireland. And mostly on arts issues, literary stuff, exhibitions, etc. But then around 2007, 2008, uh, the financial crisis hit and I invented myself or reinvented myself as a new kind of journalist, a financial journalist. That's where the work was. And I had been doing some freelance work for RTE Radio, the main national broadcaster in Dublin. And one day somebody was ill and they said, oh, can you do the business news live on a Friday at five o'clock? So I was trained up quickly and I did it. And from there, I started presenting radio news bulletins on finance news, then moved into the Irish Times reporting on business and finance. And the big lesson for me was that I loved it. I didn't have any background in this area, but it was a classic case that in journalism, you have to throw your hand to anything. The news agenda changes and you need to change with it. 
Um, so for about four years, I was working as a financial journalist, effectively, in, in Dublin with the Irish Times. Uh, this was all during the financial crisis. So there was a mixture of micro and macro economic news. You know, the IMF had moved in and almost every day a business was going bust. Seriously, you know, a serious economic crisis where big businesses across the country um, would be failing and we'd be called down to the commercial court at about 5 p.m., and then had to frantically write a story about it. And then from there, around 2013, I was appointed Europe correspondent for the Irish Times and I moved to Brussels. And I spent four years there. That was fascinating. There was still a good bit of financial news because the Eurozone crisis was still happening. But then the story began to change. So there was the um, refugee crisis began. I was there for the Brexit referendum. Other things like the anniversary, I remember the centenary of the start of World War One, going to Ypres and covering all that. And then just after the inauguration of Donald Trump, I moved to America as Washington correspondent for the Irish Times. And I spent four and a half years and that would need his own podcast to talk about that experience. <laughs> but back in Brussels now and working with Politico, um, really enjoying the change, the a different kind of a media outlet. Uh, Brussels in some ways have changed, some ways it stays the same. That's where I'm at now. That's great. Just as a matter of interest, what was the PhD on? It was on Virginia Woolf and questions of national identity. So all about Englishness and Britishness. This was well before Brexit. So little did I know it would become <laughs> very relevant. Very apposite. I always think, though, that being able to once have done a very deep dive into a subject really gives you an ability to reflect on so many other issues later on. Stephanie, what is your background? Why are you in London now? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I uh, arrived in London already 10 years ago, and um, my very first assignment was the so-called Bloomberg speech, which was the speech by uh, David Cameron. I remember it was uh, an early morning, dark January morning uh, that we went to the Bloomberg building in the city. And the uh, then prime minister announced that he was going to have a referendum about the EU membership <laughs> which at the time seemed like, oh, he's not going to do it anyway, because the next election he will not win a majority. And bam, 2015, the Conservatives got a majority and he had to do that referendum and uh, the rest is history. Mm. And until the end of 2012, I was a Brussels correspondent. I had spent four years in Brussels covering, as Suzanne, the, the, the Euro crisis. I mean, I don't know how many summits, I don't know how many nights we spent in that in that uh, in that building in the Justus Lipsius building cold and drafty and uh, waiting for the press conferences yeah and i i always wanted to be a journalist actually i come from a rather small town in the west of germany near düsseldorf it's called mönchengladbach it's uh, i grew up in the shadow of the famous football stadium my father was a footballer so i have no academic family background whatsoever but i always liked um newspapers um, the Rheinische Post, which was our lo local newspaper. And I always looked at the bylines and I thought, God, that would be cool if it said Stephanie Boltz in London one day. <laughs> and I also used to do a lot of music when I was young uh, and play in orchestras. And then one day the local um, culture editor came in and asked if someone was interested working as a freelancer for uh, the newspaper doing concert reviews. And so at the age of, I think, 18, I started working for the local newspaper, writing about mainly liturgic music. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then um, in 2000, I um, started my training with Axel Springer, uh, based in Hamburg and in Berlin. And I've been with Springer ever since. So 22 years, first in Berlin and Hamburg, uh, later on in Brussels and uh, now in London. Well, 
I think the two of you reflect the very wide world of how journalism appeals to people and how much we all just sort of get attracted to it. I too started out at the age of 18 for completely different reasons. Um, I too did a PhD thinking I wanted to be an academic. Um, and um, unlike you two, I didn't go back fully into the media but or journalism, partly because it had become the media. So let's just, before we move on to the affairs of the day, let's look at this business of journalism and media. What do you consider yourselves, journalists, media operators? How do you see it? Suzanne? Um, I consider myself a journalist, um, but I am aware, and I think it's important for us all to uh, accept and, you know, reflect the world we're living in. And that also applies to media and how it's changing. And obviously a big challenge for all of us has been the, the huge revolution in media and the move towards digital, which was not envisaged, you know, 30 years ago, probably. Um, I mean, part of my career moving to Politico, it's more of a digital focused media outlet. So I'm finding that very interesting. I'm finding that quite fulfilling and not thinking as much as a daily newspaper deadlines, even though newspapers, established newspapers like the Irish Times with a great tradition behind them are also moving obviously digitally. But I'm now with this kind of younger company and, uh, you know, it forced me to rethink some of my habits and think about how we communicate and, you know, get myself out of my comfort zone, to be honest. And I think it's a good uh, lesson for us all in whatever career we're in that's important to move with the times. Um, even looking at some of my younger colleagues, again, I think that's useful to see how they have come up in a different tradition, not coming from the same background as, as I have in terms of the media landscape. And um, I do think it's important to confront that. Like everyone else, probably like like everyone on this call, I mean, I'm I'm very passionate about the principles of journalism about um, the need for the truth, for facts, but also the, the, the beauty of communication, of clear communication. That's also what it's about. It's about getting a message through in a clear, concise fashion uh, in whatever way you do that. But that's, that's one of the, the jobs uh, of media. And in a moment, obviously, when Twitter and all these shorter forms of, of communication are out there, I think there still is a really, really important role and a need, need for that. But how would you define the difference between journalism and media, or as you say, digital? What has changed, do you think, in your, in your application of the profession, as you've just put it? Well, I think one of the problems is that um, as journalists and in traditional media, we work within very strict legal systems, libel laws. And I am frustrated by the fact that people can get on Twitter and, and apparently say what they want, whereas we've got completely different standards uh, that we need to uphold in our traditional journalism. Uh, and that applies to political, to the Irish Times, to, vet, to, er, to everyone working uh, in, in our profession. And uh, we take those very seriously. And that's part of what we do. It's in our DNA that you can't just write anything. You have to make sure, is it true? You have to check, you know, you check whoever you're writing about. You have to check with them. You have to put in a request for comment, all these things. And the opposite seems to be happening on social media. And I think that's the big distinction at the moment between, uh, you know, traditional media outlets and the world of social media in particular. And I think we are at a moment, obviously, with what's happening at Twitter, but also a whole conversation about regulation of social media that's going to have to happen. And one of the things I noticed living in the US compared to Europe, when I was in Brussels the first time around, you know, the EU was very much to the fore in regulating tech companies. But it has changed in America. I think they've come around, Democrats and Republicans, for very different political reasons. Republicans, because they feel sometimes they're too left-leaning, do want, are now embracing the idea of regulation of these uh, these platforms more. 
And I think that is a very, very good thing. Good. Stephanie, do you see yourself as a journalist or as a media operator? No, of course, like like Susanna, I see myself as a, as a journalist, almost an old school journalist, very much a reporter going out, trying to find stories. Um, uh, I'm here in, in London. I'm a member of the lobby, of the Westminster lobby. Uh, and I, I love going into the House of Parliament and going into committee hearings and picking up the things in between, because this is how you actually find ideally exclusive stories, which in London, of course, as a foreign correspondent is much more difficult. But that's the, the kind of trade I learned in Brussels and what I loved in Brussels. I think Brussels is the best place for especially young journalists to to learn the business um, because you have so many institutions you can get access to. Legislation is done. I mean, legislation for Europe and for the world. And um, I, I really enjoyed my time there because you... Yeah, you learn to find your networks, your contacts, who is important, who is more important, who can you trust, who is reliable sources. Um, yeah, all that. I think in that sense, I can only recommend Brussels as a place uh, also to, to young journalists, though it's very overwhelming when you when you start there. But London is a very different place to uh, Brussels in that sense um, when you when you represent the German media because as I just said legislation is done in Brussels so that's very relevant for the audience back home while in London it's of course Brexit was a very very big story and that's very relevant for the for our readers um, back home but it becomes now say increasingly difficult to find stories because I'm, I see myself more as a political reporter and then relate to our audiences back home. And I do notice, picking up on uh, what Suzanne just said, um, how the media has changed. We, of course, have a paywall and we need to sell our articles. And articles sell better if they, have, if they are somehow relevant also for, for our readers. So very often they have somehow a reference to Germany but you cannot always find a reference to Germany in a foreign country. So we do quite a lot of um, kind of geopolitical observations. I'm trying to get as many interviews as I can. Uh, but I, I do sometimes have the feeling that journalism becomes, while it's very global, it becomes more provincial because you have to, say, feed the readers things that are really making a difference or have some significance for their everyday life. Does foreign news actually exist anymore? Some of the things that I sometimes think, taking what both of you said, and, and from my own experience, in the very, very, very old days, you used to pick up a newspaper and there was, you know, the front page, whatever it was, and then um, there would be, you know, one or two or three pages of whatever was really important to that place, a country, a city, whatever. But there was always a foreign news page too. That doesn't really exist anymore in itself. Picking up on your point of, you know, people becoming more parochial and provincial. Do, do you think that's the case, Suzanne? Well, I mean, I think in a lot of publications, there still are foreign news pages. And I was very much in my, most of my career, kind of writing for the foreign pages. And sometimes your story would make it onto the front. A lot in the case of Donald Trump's America, for example, I was constantly writing front page stories, but also then for the for the foreign pages. But I mean, you're right in that the Internet, again, has changed everything. Now you have a lot more global media brands. The example of this is the New York Times, which is thriving. It's got millions of subscribers and um, it's now a multi 
country. It's 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 crossing borders, uh, and people all around the world are, are reading it. So you're you're you have that market for an English language global media organization. I mean, Politico does it to an extent too, with um, presence in Washington and Europe. But that that is a challenge then for uh, national titles to compete really with that. So as Stephanie was saying, one way of doing this is, you know, we were, we were always looking for the, the national angle and why it's significant for our readers, because those readers may just like pick up the New York Times or et cetera, another global publication, although they do have to pay for that. Um, so, yeah, I do think, though, there still is a um, a very big demand for foreign news and, and maybe that the Internet has made that uh has brought that home to people much more, that they they get that sense of what's happening abroad and they want more of it, particularly those big stories, say, for example, like Trump. Uh, sometimes it's harder with the EU. It's seen as very boring, even though, as Stephanie says, I completely agree, it's fascinating to cover. So much is happening there. All our European uh, legislation, so much of it has been forged every day in Brussels. Of course, the challenge is communicating that, and that's our job as journalists as well. But uh, But yeah, those big global stories will always have an audience. And I think maybe... Uh, this is an example of of the broader media landscape and the more the the internet driven uh, coverage being a good thing. But we are in many ways also talking about a very limited aren't we audience that you're both appealing to, and isn't that in itself an issue? I mean, you know, the sort of stories that you're both talking about, the Welt and Politico, uh, and the New York Times, for the sake of argument, aren't exactly read by massively wide audience. They're read about what five percent, maybe maximum. 10% of the population, and the rest don't necessarily uphold journalistic standards, um, the issues that we talked about before. How do you how do you feel about that, and how does that fit into the role of journalism and media in public debate? I think um, in that context, the um, COVID pandemic was a very interesting experience because um, I think for all how do you say, legacy traditional media, it was, uh, in, in quotation marks, a good time in the sense that um, people suddenly turned around and wanted reliable information. So there was a lot of demand of um, articles by scientists, wherever they came from, whether they were biologists or uh, experts of statistics. And so uh, it was... It was a positive um, trend, I should think, that uh, people went back to what at the time in Germany, for example, you call them the mainstream media, as you do in the US, and we were losing out a bit to, to social media. But people are still convinced that reliable information comes from traditional organizations. And yeah, we, we of course, won a lot of subscriptions, digital subscriptions in, in those two years, and we're trying to maintain those. And I don't know about Politico, but I'm sure they're doing the same, that they send the daily or weekly analysis of what has been read well, what has not been read well. Um, and I, I do know that our subscribers appreciate what I write because they they, they read what I what I write about uh, British politics. And um, so it doesn't, I'm not pessimistic. I'm not, uh, of course, times become tougher. And especially for young journalists, they will not have the luxury maybe we had um, with a lot of more securities, but um, that's the labor market. And I, I, I think it's such a, such a great job uh, that uh, if, if someone young feels there's something for me, just go for it because it's fantastic. Suzanne, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, I mean, on the point of that you made about, you know, you're only 
communicating to a small audience. I mean, I think that was always the case that in in different guises, in different forms, media's taken, that it was always only a certain part of the population that you got to. But that doesn't mean that that negates what you're doing. Um, I agree that it's good to get feedback and to feel your material is being read and that you do have that kind of extra layer of, I won't use the word authority because that makes it sound elitist, but of information that maybe a punter on Twitter, you know, frankly doesn't have. Um, not all, but but a lot of them. So I do think people value it and, you know, that they, as the number of media outlets or social media outlets grows, I think then the quality of a product and of a of a new of a news agent of any kind becomes more valuable, arguably. And I think it's good the way as Stephanie said, the media has survived, it's traditional journalism has survived. It's pretty much thriving at the moment, it's doing pretty well. And I think ten years ago a lot of people might not have foreseen that. But it's one of the ironic effects, I suppose, of social media. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Let's move into today, as it were. What are the biggest stories each of you respectively are covering right now? Suzanne? Well, I suppose the war in Ukraine has changed everything in terms of European politics. When I came back to Europe, um, it was very much still conversations about COVID policy, etc. There were issues about, which are still there, about Poland and Hungary and their rule of law standards in the EU, and that was a headache for the EU. But then in February, everything changed with the war in Ukraine. So that is now affecting every aspect of EU policy, from obviously defence and foreign policy, but also, you know, talks about budget and finance as that try to, you know, help Ukraine. Also the energy crisis, how that affects energy policy and national and EU budgets, etc. Agriculture, you name it, it's now the big issue. Um, I'm just back from... Tirana in Albania for the Western Balkan Summit. That was fascinating. That was about the EU leaders meeting with leaders of the six Western Balkan members um, about enlargement. I mean, that's an issue that's been knocking around for years. uh, And there has been a kind of resistance, really, led by France and other countries to enlarging the EU anymore. One reason being that I think some countries feel disappointed by the behaviour of countries like Hungary and Poland and their governments at the moment since they entered the EU and are being put off uh, expanding the bloc further. But Ukraine has kind of changed the dynamic a bit. Now a lot of the EU leaders are sitting up and worrying about what's happening in their own backyard, that Russia, it, Russian influence is growing in places like Serbia, uh, and that they need to be aware of this. So that has been a really fascinating uh, few days in Albania, looking at it from that perspective, analysing where the whole EU enlargement question is going, and the geopolitical significance of these countries that are on the edges of the EU and quite near Russia. And how do you translate that as a journalist to your audience? Yeah, I mean, again, it's back to that communication that I think is central. And, you know, the skills of journalism are fundamentally, yes, ensuring the facts are there and the information, but you need to be able to write, you need to be able to communicate. And I mean, I don't think, I think it's up to us to be able to do that. That's the craft. And, you know, anybody starting out in journalism, A, I'd say, you know, you need to read a lot. You need to be reading all the time. And B, you need to be writing. You have to be able to write and communicate. And if you can't do that, well, then there's no point if you have all the information in your head. That's what EU officials do all the time. We all know the EU speak that's hard to decipher. Um, so, no, I think if you, if you have a good understanding of something, you talk to enough people, you can present that objectively as a factual story. And I think you can make it interesting. That's, that's incumbent on us. And if it's not interesting... 
people are not going to read it. That's still, you know, a, a basic tenet of, of what we do. Stephanie, what are your big stories currently? <laughs> um, the big story here has been for 10 years the the ongoing uh, crisis of the Brit of British politics, to be honest. Although, to be fair, it really started with the Brexit referendum in 2016. And I think every everyone agrees who, who'd been here working as a correspondent or even just, as, I mean, as a national reporter, um, since that referendum, everything has changed. Um, I mean, interestingly... Brits and especially those who are supporting the referendum, they don't want to admit that. Uh, but if you just look at the numbers, I mean, in boring, dull Germany in 50 years, we had five Bundeskanzler, five chancellors, prime ministers. And in 10 years, we had five prime ministers in Britain, which um, is astonishing because Britain always was seen as, yeah, I mean, obviously the oldest democracy and um, very pragmatic, stable policies or politics. And, and that has changed. Uh, and obviously this year, 2022, was then even more extraordinary, not only because of the term in number 10, but because the Queen died. And we always knew that was going to be the biggest story ever. Um, and that was something I will I will not never forget in my life, obviously, because that so-called London Bridge operation, which had been planned for decades and being here for that and also getting quite a lot of access. So, for example, I was in Westminster Hall when the king came for the first time to pay his respects to the House of Lords and the House of uh, Commons, um, the funeral or the events that happened around the the death of the queen. That was extraordinary. We are now, well, after that, there was more turmoil, of course, because Liz Truss left and Rishi Suna came in. I think we are now getting into a bit quieter time, but not for long, because this government, I think the Tory party is worn out. It's been 12 years uh, in power. There are so many fighting fractions and the country is in a very bad state. So um, it's interesting to see now how um, actually yesterday there was a story that Labour has now far more donations than the Tories. Who knew? And there's really a feeling that change is coming, but it, it might take a time. And I should also very much uh, emphasize that I'm also the island correspondent. So I cover Ireland from London, which I think is a terrible thing because, first of all, you have a British view on Ireland. You are too far away and there's so much happening in London that I um, I admit I, I go to Ireland not often enough. But the story of Ireland in the Brexit context has also been a fascinating one. And I wrote quite a lot about this. Um, Stephanie, I was in, I went to Belfast to myself in Northern Ireland back in May when there were elections for Politico. And I'd never really covered that aspect of Northern Ireland politics. But when I went there, I bumped into lots of old journalists from French and German newspapers that I knew from my Brussels days, who were all, we were all in the same kind of constituency office for Sinn Féin waiting to do an interview. So it was kind of fascinating to see it. Um, to see all these journalists from around Europe coming to Belfast to do the story. And a lot of them, as you say, uh, were based in, in London. Uh, so it, it, it's quite interesting. And it is a fascinating angle on, on the whole Brexit issue. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether you also uh, got the impression that there are actually far more European <laughs> reporters coming to cover Ireland and Northern Ireland than British uh, reporters. Yeah, 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 there's a few. But yes, you're right. So much going on in British politics as well. That, that was one of the problems around then, I think. But I think one of the things you two are pointing out, which is so interesting, and this is part of the job of a reporter to try or a journalist to try and bring it out. Suzanne, you're essentially reporting a non-national story. 
you're at the middle of a multinational, international story on a daily basis, which has different aspects to it. It can be Ukraine, it can be COVID, it can be Brexit. And Stephanie, you're looking at a very national or should be binational, really, um, aspect of a story. You've both done both, I think. How do the two compare? How does your brain work with that? Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it's a bit like diplomats who work in, you know, who are bilateral, you know, bilateral ambassador to a country or they're part of a multinational institution like the UN or the EU. And I think I prefer I would be if I was a diplomat in the UN or the EU. Like I like I like the challenge of having all these different topics, different countries with competing ideas. And as Stephanie said at the beginning, it's fascinating in terms of sources because you always get these different angles. Certain issues are huge for some countries, not so much for others. I found, particularly when I was in the Irish Times for Brussels, it was, quite, it was very collegial because maybe we'd swap information. I'd barter information with, for example, a Danish journalist where I'd heard something that was relevant to Denmark that wasn't particularly relevant to Ireland. And then vice versa, they'd fill me in on something they'd heard. So I found that very interesting. Also, Washington and Brussels are quite similar, I think, to cover because one of the challenges as a journalist is identifying where the centre of power is and what's the most powerful institution within that ecosystem at the time. So in Brussels, you have the Europe, you know, the Council, you've got the European Commission, the European Parliament and other institutions. In Washington, you've got the White House, you've got Capitol Hill, you've got the Pentagon, the State Department, and at certain times, one of those are more prominent. Now, you could argue in Brussels... I'd probably argue I'd probably be getting wrapped in the knuckles for this. The council is probably the most important anyway in the EU. But when I was in Washington, for example, it was all about the White House. I mean, it was everything was to do with Trump and that dominated. Whereas another time, if I'd been there during the Iraq war, for example, it might be more the DOD, Department of Defense or whatever. So in, in that sense, there are similar ecosystems and you've defined your position in that Uh it is also difficult when you're a national journalist to get access sometimes. I find that in the US, being Irish was a huge advantage because, the, you know, the Irish-American thing. Also, I was working for an English-speaking newspaper, so I think I was at a bit of an advantage. But in Brussels, it's much more um, egalitarian in that every single country has their journalists there. They're all getting briefed. And then with political, it's different because I'm writing for not one country, which I'm finding really interesting. And it's really thrilling in a way because I'm not looking for the angle. I'm just, you know, seeing what the news story of the day is. But as you say, identifying what that news story is, is part of our job. Who sets the agenda? We set the agenda a bit. We have to make sure we're not being overbriefed by people who want a certain angle out on something. Um, so all those questions we navigate every single day. Stephanie, I saw you shaking your head at a certain point. No, no, I was just uh, laughing um, a bit tongue-in-cheek about who's the most important institution in Brussels. Of course, it's the commission. How dare you saying it's the council? But uh, anyway, um, no, but uh, it's it's um, it's quite an experience to be a foreign correspondent, um, whether it's in Brussels or in London. I know Washington is also very tricky. Brussels for German media was always very easy because we are also a big newspaper, so... I, I think I'd rather too much access and too many stories uh, and you had to choose what you what you would pick. When I arrived in London, I, I almost fell into depression because not even an MP would talk to me. Why would they talk to me? Because I was foreign media. They only run the risk saying something stupid. Uh, and, and also it doesn't deliver for them because what delivers for them is either social media or some local newspaper back in their constituency. But then one thing I learned in Brussels was um, 
setting up backgrounds. And so actually within a very nice colleague of Suzanne from the Irish Times, Mark Hennessy at the Times, who used to be the London correspondent, and a Dutch colleague, we, we set up the first background group of uh, EU correspondents. And we were 12 people, some French, uh, Danish, Spanish, a Swiss as well. And we got am amazing access after the Brexit referendum. So, uh, because how, how can I say that without being German and very rude, but British politi politicians are not interested at all in foreign media. And then they saw us and thought, oh, that's, that's handy. There's a pool of EU journalists and we became the go-to group. And we got all the interviews with the Brexit uh, secretaries, with foreign ministers. Uh, I myself got every prime minister. And that was simply because we, the Europeans, suddenly became a constituency. Because if you remember at the time, the Brits always thought they actually can negotiate with individual um, member states. They can ignore the commission. As we now know, that never, that never uh, took up but, um, or took off. But it, um, yeah, it was, it, I think that's also another lesson for someone who goes into journalism, form your networks, work with colleagues. I mean, obviously you can't rely on what colleagues say, but as Suzanne says, you pick up things and you, you can fill your, your picture and then you go to your sources and, and try to find out. And, um, yeah, abroad, it's really important to represent yourself as, um, an EU media group, whether it's in Washington, I guess, or in London, because, uh, that, that really worked well. Moving on to a specific story, this year we've dwelt quite a lot on the podcast for obvious reasons, being women in international security on Ukraine. How have you found the difference in um, reflecting on the story and how has it affected your work and your stories over this year? Stephanie? I haven't covered Ukraine that much, obviously. Um, I have covered uh, Ukraine more in the beginning, very intensely, when there was this controversy around who is delivering how many weapons. Um, the German government, obviously, uh, was very and rightly criticized because they were so slow, first of all, in accepting that there was going to be a war, and then um, in supporting Ukraine full-heartedly. I think that has really changed now. But uh, the British government, and it also comes from a very different tradition, and also I think the experience of Britain having had two attacks on their own soil by Russia in the form of the attack on um, Alexander Litvinenko back in 2006, and then in 2018, I think it was against uh, Sergei Skripal. So these poison attacks on individuals, on British soils, other people were also hurt and injured and one person even died back in 2018. So there's a, there was a very different experience. And I, I, I do think also the tradition of Britain of taking someone on the chin, as you say, is... It's just it's just a fact, and Germany, because of uh, her tradition, is is a very different place to be. Um, when I was in Brussels, I I covered NATO, and I went quite a lot of times to Afghanistan. I was embedded in the south of Afghanistan with the U.S. Marines and all these things. I, I as woman in 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 security, I often thought it's actually easier, and because you are a bit, I wouldn't say exotic, but there are far more men working. Than, than women. And I think it's very important, again, to form networks there. Um, yeah, and sometimes I also think women might get good stories that are a bit more human-related and see the human aspects of, of a conflict. But you weren't attracted to becoming a war correspondent? Mm, 
Not, not really. And the reason being, to be honest, I mean, I have children and I didn't want to risk it. You, when you have children, I think you, you get to the point that you think, mm, do I really want to risk myself being in a, in a battlefield and getting injured? So I know a lot of women have children and, and go and are war correspondents and I respect that fullheartedly. Um, that's amazing, but it's not for me. It's a tough job, there's no doubt. Suzanne, did you ever want to be a war correspondent? Um, no, I mean, I think it depends, again, what the times in which you're living in. So, for example, I know this is a very specific example, but an earlier gener- generation of British journalists or international journalists covered the Troubles in Northern Ireland. But when I was a journalist, the Troubles had, had ended, essentially, so it wasn't an option. Um, I mean, so you go with what the story, again, people who covered the Iraq war when that was at its zenith and, and in the in the years after 9-11, for example. Um, but in terms of Ukraine, I mean, what I've been reporting a lot on is things like sanctions policy, the connections between the Biden administration and European Commission President von der Leyen, very close contacts there. And essentially what, what appears to have happened was that the Biden administration was warning the national capitals, as Stephanie mentioned there, was warning Berlin and Paris that something was coming and their their warnings were being ignored. And in one sense, the commission stepped into that vacuum. They uh, started working on these very, very uh, discreet negotiations about sanctions policy and about having something to go if the invasion happened. And that is what transpired. So that's been quite interesting uh, watching that. I mean, but just one of my reflections, uh, picking up what Stephanie said about working together with people. In my last posting in Brussels, I did go down to the border, the Turkish-Syrian border, during the refugee crisis. And um, I remember I hired a car and drove down on my own, which looking back now was absolutely a ridiculous thing to do. But I did and was driving on the road to Halep, wondering where, what, somebody said, follow the road to Halep. And then when I got there, I realised Halep was actually Aleppo. But I, I didn't go into Syria, but I, when I arrived at the border, I didn't have a translator with me. And... Um, we, I remember going to a safe house, interviewing these, I could still see them, Syrian men who had come over the border. And one guy who was sitting there then removed his blanket and he'd lost two of his legs from the knee down on a mine um, just over the border. But on that occasion, I bumped into another journalist, a, a woman I know, a, a Scandinavian journalist from Brussels. Oh, hi, you're here. And we kind of pooled resources. So I had the car and she had the translator. And between us, we then travelled around that area and got great stories. And, you know, I remember the Turkish authorities were very, very hostile about us being there. It was a pretty tense situation. Um, but I do always remember, and I bumped into her recently, and we said, oh, the last time we met was down at the border. Uh, and remember, we worked together. So it's a, it's a good example of that kind of collegial aspect of journalism that exists. And when you work together, it can be really fruitful for everyone. But clearly, again, you weren't um, tempted to become a war correspondent. Yeah, again, I think, you know, that's life. Sometimes your opportunities come along um, and you you follow those opportunities as they are presented. And yeah, for me, it wasn't really a, an option in terms of the stories and my career took a different turn. But now, of course, I'm seeing, you know, it's, it's now back on the agenda. We war in Europe. Who would have thought it? So and again, I mean, really interesting debates about how the media has changed that, about social media, about restrictions on what media and social media can report, about what's happening in Ukraine. It's opening up all kinds of challenges in terms of war reporting now, uh, given that this war is happening when social media is so uh, prevalent. Social media is, in fact, absolutely part of the war. And in many ways, that also leads probably to our last question, however fascinating this conversation is, which is a very recent report that came out 
based on interviews with over a thousand women journalists in 15 countries, which shows that women journalists suffer a huge amount of violence against them in social media. Have either of you experienced that? I have I have had uh, abuse online. Um, I also get abuse sometimes over email because we have our um, writer's profile on the website and then people can very easily just email me. Uh, usually that's people who obviously <laughs> use uh, a silly name and it's not their real name. I do not engage with anyone who doesn't give their real name because I think if you don't have the courage and the humanity to say who you are, if you are sending me these kind of outrageous, impertinent, harassing tweets, um, why should I engage? I do engage um, with serious criticism. I'm, I often get blame back in Germany by readers that I'm, I was always far too critical of Boris Johnson. Um, and I, I sometimes end up on the phone and I, I email people and say, um, look, thank you for your email. I really appreciate that. Can we have a chat? And my experience is every time that if you engage with people while you still have different opinions, but um, you bring the conversation back to a very respectful uh, uh, level. And I, but I, I do know, um, obviously not so much me, but here one of the stories that was really upsetting uh, was the abuse of um, female MPs during the Brexit times. And um, in the election of 2019, there was at least half a dozen, if not more, female MPs who didn't stand anymore because they couldn't, they couldn't cope. They were, they had death threats. Had threats to their unborn children. Uh, they left politics, and I think this is uh, this is for for our society and for politics a real serious loss. And I think there should be more thinking about this because it's it's harming us as a society if women, because they are threatened, don't speak up anymore. Suzanne, yeah, I haven't had too much more abuse than other people uh, on social media. I mean, I think when I was a financial journalist, actually, I felt sexism a lot more. I would often go to a um, an AGM, for example, which was like the business world, or if anybody's covered Davos, it's just completely dominated by men. And I would go to an AGM and, you know, the PR person would be kind of like, who are you? And then they realize I'm from the Irish time. Oh, right. But a complete assumption would be made all the time about me. So I, and I also, I remember covering the ECB down in Frankfurt and I asked Mario Draghi at the time questions. And I remember getting some Twitter abuse from some unnamed probably financial bank bankers in London who thought they knew it all, uh, why I wasn't asking about interest rate policy or something. But, you know, again, um, I mean, Angela Merkel, I suppose, is an example of this. People can underestimate you and you can, that, that can be a positive all the time. Um, and people make assumptions and they, they make assumptions all the time about how people look and, and who they think a journalist is supposed to be. We do it in every walk of life. But in America, under the Trump administration, I went to some very hostile rallies where it was anti-media. And, and arguably, yeah, because I was kind of small in stature, a young woman, pe people didn't see me as a threat. If I was there with a, with a big ca a camera and I was a six foot three guy, maybe they would have. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we all have to check our perceptions of, of others in a professional setting all the time. And it's the same in journalism. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I think it's been an absolutely fascinating one. So that's really a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Suzanne Lynch and Stephanie Bolzen. 
we'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. That's W-I-I-S-Brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with my friend and producer Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. Bye.